Welcome to part three of the Bumper 2021 end of year podcast. So we've now got the teaching questions. So the first one is from Heather Harris. She said, many autistic people are directed towards martial arts and away from team sports. Have you consciously made plans for teaching autistic people? And if so, what sort of accommodations do you consider? Do you find that they tend to divulge their autism or leave it to you to discover? I really, again, like that question. For me, martial arts are for everybody. And I can understand why people on the autistic spectrum uh, enjoy the martial arts. Uh, I I have uh, family members who are autistic. And interestingly, uh, when the parents of that particular family member, um, are also family, obviously, uh, when they were asked, is there anyone else in your family possibly who shares autistic traits? Uh, they said, yeah, Ian, <laughs> uh, which I, I probably do in, in, in a mild way. When I, when I kind of explore it a bit more, like, yeah, that's me. You know, I, I have these, you know, little obsessions. I'll get into a given topic and then I'm, that's my thing. And I'm really into it for a long period of time before I move on to the, the next thing. And obviously I think it's helped me to a degree to, with the, uh, the martial arts. I do have autistic students as well, and this autistic family member has also done martial arts. Uh, thankfully, they were able to find a, a, a good instructor who was aware of the issues um, around that. Uh, to, to me, again, it's a communication thing. When the, the younger ones, are, the parents normally tell me, uh, talk to the parents about what issues they may have and then make sure that um, I address them. I generally find that most of the adults who have those issues are quite forthright in, in, in telling me about it, then you make those accommodations, just as you would for anyone else. You know, every single one of us has, you know, something, whether it be, you know, physical, mental, character, whatever it happens to be, you know, everybody's different. And I think it's important that as instructors, we, we do make these accommodations. But but again, grand believer in treating people like individuals too. So I wouldn't have a generic, this is what I would do for people with X condition or X issues, you know. Um, I would always, you know, talk to them or talk to the parents, and then and try and make sure we make that kind of accommodation. Uh, but I think it's important. And Matt Ricardo has a very similar question. He goes, as, as a karateka on the autistic spectrum, I find martial arts extremely beneficial in my own development. I wanted to ask if you have any experience of teaching individuals with autism or indeed any other uh, differently able person, and how your approach differs from teaching regular students. Well, I mean, it differs because the issues are, di- are different. But as I say, everybody's got something, whether it be, you know, I've got a bad back or I've got a dicky knee or, you know, I've, I've got whatever issues it is, you know, I lack confidence or whatever it happens to be. You know, everybody's in an individual. So I, I like to get to learn about the students uh, and then try and guide them the, the best I can. All the instructors that, that, that I really admire, that I try to emulate, have always been very good at doing that. They teach to the individual. They don't go, right, I'm going to teach the same to all of you, and if it works, great, and if it doesn't, tough. Um, there's always an element of, 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 of altering your teaching style on that one-to-one basis with every individual, um, so they get as much out of it as, as they can. You know, teaching is a skill. 
it, and it's a very different skill from being able to do the martial arts yourself. And I'm sure everybody's aware of this. There are some people who are incredibly good martial artists, but awful teachers. And then you get some people who aren't that physically talented themselves, but they're quite knowledgeable and they're able to get others to a high level as well. So, you know, it's always important to remember when you go to an instructor, you're not hiring a bodyguard. It doesn't matter what they can do. What you're after is what they can do for you. And I think a, a good instructor will always be able to factor in the, the needs of uh, of the individual. So, yeah, very important. And I say autism is one of these things that's, you know, close to my heart because I'm probably on the edges of that spectrum myself. And, and, and also, you know, I, I know um, I've, got, I've got family members with those issues. So it, it's something that I am aware of and, and, and important that we, um, we we do. We teach the individual. That's a key thing, I think. So next one's Darren Teasdale. He says, how do you structure a normal class, uh, i.e. percentage of key on kata pad drills, bunk eye, to cover a full syllabus and to ensure your students have solid basics? So what, one thing is I, I, I try and avoid what I'd call a normal class. It's because I, I think that can be boring. You know, there's that thing of, oh, it's 6.30, it's time for sidekicks. You know, people like variety. So what I always try and do is that in a given kind of two-week period, then we've, we've covered everything. But in one given class, okay, this is going to be a bunkai heavy day, or this is going to be a pad drill heavy day, and we might only do a little bit of key on, or no key on. The next class will do more to make up for that. So I tend to mix and, and, and match. So when the students walk through the door, they're never quite sure what's going to happen. you know. And then that keeps it interesting and engaging for them as well. Change the order too. Um, I don't always do key on at the start, typically, as well. Sometimes we'll do some kata first, then some bunkai, then we'll do some key on. I think mixing it up makes it more interesting for people and they still get everything done i also think in terms of uh, getting the full syllabus covered a good syllabus will be integrated so the kata supports the pad work supports the kata supports the bunkai supports the kumite it's all kind of interlinked and related um so therefore if they're doing pad drills they'll be related to the bunkai which is in turn related to the kata so if they're doing pad drills, that'll help the cutter indirectly as well. So, so that integrated system kind of really helps. But yeah, I try and avoid like um, the same class every time. I try and mix it up a bit. And sometimes that's an issue we have when people visit. Um, we often get people come and visit the dojo. I like to see what a normal class is. Well, you're not going to see that. You're going to see what we did on that given day. That might not what we'll do the next day. In fact, it won't be. You know, but pe you know, people still get a flavour of how things work. So I hope that helps, Darren. Uh, next one's from Peter Jones. He said, uh, among the listeners, there must surely be one or two people planning to open their first club in 2022. So what advice would you give them? What should they do in advance? Planning, logistics, insurance, risk assessment, syllabus, all that kind of thing. So, so there, there is a lot of work in, in running a club behind the scenes, which all the instructors listening to this will know. And a lot of the uh, students probably don't know. <laughs> uh, you talk to an instructor, they'll forever be telling you about the amount of admin they've got to do and the amount of planning they've got to do. It's not just the time in the dojo. There's organising first aid training for all instructors, getting insurance in place, getting all the risk assessments done. Uh, as, as Peter says, designing this, the, the syllabus as well. So for someone who's planning on opening their first club, if they haven't done it, I think one of the best things they can do is try and affiliate with an organisation that will support them. So there's lots of associations out there 
find the one that's a good fit for you. Uh, ideally, you want one that will give you all the support you need, but won't micromanage, you know, won't demand that you slavishly do exactly what they do. They'll give you the support you need, but not the interference you don't. And, and if you find a good group like that, a good association like that, they'll be able to guide you through all of that stuff. So in my role as um, with the BCKA, the British Combat Karate Association, the BCA and the World Combat Association, in my case particularly the World Combat Association, uh, I am heavily involved in that. It, it's something I do day in day out i'll be on the phone to people advising them about how to do the syllabuses and um things that they need to have in place you know and i'm there to offer that support as is peter constantine as well of course who's um the the other guy that you know people will be aware of that's obviously head of the uh, all those organizations i've just mentioned so yeah there is a lot of work to do be prepared that you're going to do it and there's it needn't be uh, um overly laborious if you can find the right group that will be able to kind of guide you you through that and take it step by step tired of poor cellular reception then get the latest smartphone from hickatay limited we are now applying our patented power generation technology to your mobile communication Choose any existing mobile phone from major brands and we'll convert it into a Hikate phone by cutting it in half. By the power of Hikate, your half a phone will somehow work better than a regular mobile phone. Don't ask us how this works, but the boffins at Sensei says assures us that it does. Just listen to what one of our many satisfied customers have told us. Uh, well, we couldn't get through to any of them for a quote because they're all walking around with half a mobile phone in the pocket. But we assume they're delighted with their purchase. Hikate Mobile! You know it makes no sense, but do it anyway! So the next one's from uh, uh, Cameron uh, Cassina. Uh, again, I hope I pronounced your surname right there, uh, Cameron. He said, do you feel that many dojos teach karate backwards? I tried to introduce students right away to partner work, some kind of sparring, basic grappling and uh, striking principles, and, and basic fighting techniques. I think a foundation of practical fighting skills should be taught from the start instead of a strong emphasis on solo kata and kion i'm sure you'll agree but i'm interested to hear you your thoughts on what i uh, call teaching karate backwards so as so i get that i fully get where cameron's uh, coming from there because good kion and good kata are extremely important but they're, they're like the foundations of a house you need those strong foundations to support everything that, that's built on top of it so having very very good keon for example won't mean that you'll be a good fighter if your tactics your strategies your timing your distancing all that kind of stuff that you get from partner work is there so we teach those side by side together so when beginners come in they learn basic grappling drills basic movement drills basic pad drills in addition to starting them getting them going on that good key on because the good key on will support that efficient pad work and everything else so I, I think you need all of that together and progressing um all the way through because uh, you do get some who do that they'll go oh, we, we introduced bunkai for example at brown belt well that seems very late to me I think you're better off introducing that stuff right from the very beginning, um, but making sure that you're still encouraging good, uh, good Catherine Keon too. It's important to have those foundations. And if I'm honest, that's one of the critiques I would have of the practical karate community uh, generally. 
is they sometimes forget that. I call this going bunkai daft. Where what they do is that uh, they go, okay, it's partner work, partner work, and more partner work, but the students can't move the body efficiently, and the body mechanics are off, and the alignment is all off, and they can't generate decent power. So, so they'll never be able to apply it effectively anyway. So, so you, you need to make sure it's all there, all the component parts are there, and that's when you develop effective students. It's also more interesting that way too, right? You know, people enjoy it more. So the next question is from Anthony Smith. He said, I, I've heard you say that you rather recently started uh, teaching children karate. I've had the pleasure of teaching children quite a few times during my martial journey. I personally find that the simplicity of a child can be somewhat eye-opening at times. What kind of personal rewards have you experienced with teaching uh, uh, karate to children? Uh, see, for years, I'll just give the background for those who don't know that. Uh, years and years ago, uh, I, I taught kids classes regularly. I really enjoyed them. I, I love spending time with children. I, I, you know, my own kids and other people's kids. I just, I really enjoy it. I, it's, it's a chance for me to play as well. <laughs> uh, I, I, but then what I did was I made the decision that what I really want to be teaching is the adult karate the practical stuff the stuff that's of most interest to me so i made the decision not to teach children and then i had this discussion with mike turbit some of you'll remember mike being on the uh the, the podcast mike is superb when it comes to teaching generally um but but in particular i'm always impressed with how he approaches um teaching children so i had a discussion with mike and he, he won <laughs> we're, we're like a, a friendly debate if you like about teaching children and he just made you know real loads of really good points i thought yeah i'm losing this argument here because what he was saying was yeah of course you want to teach the, the you know the, the practical stuff i get that that's what you're into but you know if you're taking them at 14 at the youngest what skills have they got at 14 so i go none he says well my kids he says i've already learned to move well they know the cutter they know the basics of pad holding that they've got a sense of timing and distancing already i've taught them appropriate children's karate um, and the, the regular trainers and the, the it's part of the lifestyle now and it's very easy then to layer the practical stuff on top of that and, and you know, he said, if, if you've got a 12-year-old child that wants to start learning it and they'll go to some other club, they might not enjoy it and they're lost to you forever, you know, or they do enjoy it and they stay with that, that, that club and they never get to learn the, the practical side. I thought, you know what, he's got a really good point there. So I run a small kids class. It is very small, um, but I love it. It's my favorite class of the week because <laughs> uh, I, I, it's, just, it's just great fun. I, I get really... You know, it's great to see adults do well, but to see the, the smile on a kid's face when they realise they've got this thing down, you know what I mean, and to see the confidence grow, and, and, and I mean, and I just enjoy, you know, little things, you know, last class, you know, one of the kids is running in to show me the, the soccer collect cards he's been collecting, and then he's telling me the, you know, the bits he's going to do in the nativity play, and he's reciting his lines to me that kind of interaction with the kids is is just great I, I love having fun with them and i love seeing how much they enjoy uh the karate so yeah it's my favorite class of the week it's just such a good laugh uh, so the next one's from Dustin Lundy. He said, before the pandemic, I was wanting to start a Shotokan class. Been working uh, um, and on uh, on my syllabus and tweaking it here and there. But my biggest problem is really how to start someone out while imparting good knowledge while keeping them interested. See, and, see that's a really good point. And one of my instructors, uh, again, I've been looking that I've always had really good instructors. And one of the things that he said to me, which really stuck, was he said that good training, good teaching, 
is 80% training and 20% entertaining. And that really resonated with me. So if you've been to any of my seminars and stuff, you'll know I like to tell stories, I like to tell jokes, I, I, I try and make it as, as fun for people as, as, as possible. That doesn't mean I don't take it seriously, I just believe that a fun environment is the best teaching in, environment too. Consistency is important and people, it's human nature, we like to do things we find fun. So, so part of it is making it fun. It can be hugely productive, uh, but it can still be enjoyable. You know, that doesn't mean all of it is. You know, some of the drills that we do are horrible, but they're kind of fun afterwards. You feel good. Oh, I'm proud of myself for, for, for doing that. That was hard work or scary, but I did it and I feel good about myself. Th that's a kind of fun too. Um, so when you're starting it out, I think that's a, the, the, the thing, you know, be, be warm, be welcoming, welcoming, uh, make sure the students know that, you know, you're happy that they're there, um, um, keep it interesting and engaging, make sure that they feel themselves making progress too. So uh, making sure that you uh, set these small incremental goals, we don't throw them in at the deep end. I think sometimes one of the things that instructors fall into as well is they expect black belt level performance from white belts. You know, and, and the thing is, it's got to be good enough. So if, if, the, if they're a 10th queue and they're training up for 9th queue, once it's a 9th queue level, you know, then you start telling them, yeah, that's where we need it. That's where we want it. You know, instead of, you know, oh, but, you know, your stance is still slightly off and da-da-da-da. It, it's very easily to get uh, overly negative. And, you know, critique where it's needed is obviously very important, but so is encouragement. So I, I think that's important too. So if I'll give an example. I remember teaching a, a, a seminar and there was a husband and wife there um, who I'm now very friendly with and know really, really well. Um, but it's the first time I'd met them. Uh, and the husband uh, was doing the uh, one of my drills and he was making an awesome job of it. You know, so I walked past and I'm like, whoa, you know, the, yeah, that's it. That's it. That looks fantastic. Exactly what I want. And, you know, and he smiles and I walk away and then go to the next group. Well, later on, she wrote to me saying, oh, the group we, we're currently with, that they've now left, but the group that we're currently with, um, he's been training for 10 years and he's never had a well done. It just meant so much to him. He's constantly been told he's useless, <laughs> which he isn't. You know, so I, I, I think enc that encouragement can go a long, long way. Um, and I don't hide it. If I'm really happy with the students, I'll let them know I'm really happy. I'll, you know, whoa, nice one. I'll give them a round of applause. I'll grin from ear to ear. People like that, you know. So, um, yeah, you know, incremental bits. Make sure that they feel themselves uh, progressing and um, letting them know that they're progressing too. That doesn't mean you always tell them everything's wonderful because that is demotivating as well. People like honesty, but there's ways and means that you can communicate, you know, the technique to them. It's one of the things, you know, that uh, basic teaching, but I always try and do this. You know, there's always something right. You know, you know yeah, that's great. Look, that, that hikate now is exactly where you want it. You know, your punch is nicely aligned. That's great. You, you need to turn your hips into a little bit more. So that's the thing that we need to work on. So a bit more, but yeah, that's better. Needs a little bit more work. Okay, keep working on it. Let's take a look at it next week and see where it is. You work on that during the week. That can go a long way towards uh, motivating people. So I hope that helps a little bit, uh, Dustin.
Uh, next one's from Travis Becker. He said, martial arts instructors who want to make a career out of teaching tend to be on the starving end of the wages spectrum. <laughs> That's a great line, and it's true. Uh, how does one run a financially viable dojo without having to also have uh, um, a day job? It, it is hard. You know, it, it is hard. Um, working as an electrician an industrial electrician, which I used to used to do, I made more money doing that than I'm doing now. And if I'm honest, and I'm not good at the business side of this at all. I, I, I enjoy the martial arts, and if I'm honest, it's more by default that I manage to make enough money to keep a roof over my head. Right, But I, I, I'm, I'm not good at that. There are better people who are far better at the business side of things, and that is something we need to be good at. I, I know sometimes people criticise you know, the McDojos for all their marketing and stuff. But we need to learn from that. The good martial arts instructors need to have that marketing and promotion and all that kind of stuff in place so they provide a valid alternative to the poor quality martial arts. They're not mutually exclusive. You, you can run a very good, very successful school where the instructor's able to make a living, but it is difficult, particularly in the early years. So... I, I mean, the pandemic has obviously knocked me for six and, you know, that has been a big financial struggle because for 18 months there was no money coming in. It was, it was grim. <laughs> I was sitting there at night with my woolly hat and my jacket on because I couldn't afford to put the heating on recently, right? But, but, it, you know, it's all part and parcel of the journey, right? It just becomes part of your story. Um, but in the early days in particular, it was financially difficult. I remember looking at the website thinking, somebody please order something today because I've got a mortgage Pay, payment uh, coming it, it, it is hard but you, you just keep grinding away at it so the, the way I made the transition from my, my day job to doing it full time was uh, I started saving money up so because uh, this is what my uh, one of my instructors did he did the exact same thing when he went full time so this is what he encouraged me to do uh, what he did was he saved up enough money and he thought right I know I can last for you know six months to a year even if nothing comes in um, and I know that there's going to be something coming in. So that, that's what I did. I'd saved up enough that I thought I can manage about six months if nothing comes in. And worst case scenario, if, 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 if I have to, um, and I almost did at one point, I can always go back on the tools. So at one point I thought, ah, oh, this is looking bad. I'm going to have to get some contract work. So I, I rang a local contracting agency and said, I'd like to send my CV in so you've got it on the books and I may need to drop in for some work. And they went, oh, when can you start? I said, oh, no, no, I don't want work now. And they said, oh, we're desperate for electricians with your level of expertise and prior training because, you know, it's very specific what I used to do. Um, so I thought, oh, great. That means I can hop into a job again whenever I need to. And thankfully, um, God, how long has it been now? Um, best part of two decades anyway, I haven't gone back to it. But I, th I think if someone's aim is to make lots of money, martial arts are generally not the way to do it. I, I, to be a full-time martial arts instructor, it's got to be the love of the martial arts. You know, I, I just love doing it. I really enjoy it. And it's way more fun than any day job. So I'll accept the fact that there's going to be less income. I, I affect, accept the fact it's going to be more financially precarious. But that is a trade-off for being able to live the lifestyle that that i want to live um if you want financial security um and the pandemic has definitely shown this uh, being a full-time martial artist is not for you if you're prepared to kind of live that life um then you can i'll tell you another story as well on that one i have a, a friend 
in both judo and karate um and he uh very successful entrepreneur you know, has, has run a number of very successful businesses over the years and we were driving to the uh, uh judo dojo together once and uh and i remember talking i, I think i'd been full-time at the martial arts for a year or so and I, and I started talking about some of the issues i was having financially and he was shaking his head and i, <laughs> so I looked at him and said what are you shaking your head for he goes oh you're thinking like an employed person he says you need to stop thinking like an employed person uh, anyway, a few months later, we, we, we drive into the judo dojo again. I can't even remember what it was I said, but he starts laughing again. I said, what are you laughing at now? He said, congratulations, Ian, you are now unemployable. <laughs> you know, I'd, ma I'd made the transition to that, that, that kind of mindset. But you get, get good business advice. You know, the, 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 there are specific organizations out there that will help with business from the martial arts perspective talk to people who have made a success of it uh, i'm not the right guy to talk to you about that because i don't run a successful set of schools most of my income comes from uh, seminar teaching which i accept is very unusual uh, and there are problems with that brexit has caused me problems with that and um, the pandemic has obviously caused me big problems with that but but I would say get good advice, but I'm not necessarily the right person to get advice from if what you're looking to do is is run successful local schools. And it, it does need to be financially viable. The instructor needs to be able to devote time to it. And if he has a day job too, he can't devote that amount of time to it. I'm a better instructor than I would have been because I have the time to, to research, to train, to practice, to, to interact with other martial artists. So when I go to the dojo, I've collected all of that. Uh, in, so my students don't have to do that you know I've collected that information for them so they pay me amount of money and that enables me to keep doing what I'm doing and they get benefit from it and I get benefit from it there's, there's nothing wrong with getting a, a fair wage for passing on your, your skills and that's another trap I think sometimes martial artists fall into the view poverty as a virtue you know um you know oh yeah you know that school down the road has a hundred odd students and i've got five in this church hall where the rain leaks in all the time and we've not got any good kit or anything like that but we're doing it properly we're not in it for the money well there's a balance there you see you don't have to be in it for the money but if you've got enough money to get decent kit for these students to make sure you've got more time to dedicate to your own development which in turn can be passed on for the students it's a win-win so there's a balance there um, yeah, Travis, you, you know, I've mentioned him already in this bit, but Mike Turbot is brilliant at that stuff. And, and I've, it's one of the things I want to get him back on this podcast to talk about the business side of things, because I am not good at that, as my accountant keeps telling me. <laughs> I kind of just fumble my way through it, if, if, I, if, if, I'm, if I'm honest. Yeah, it's an element I need to improve upon. And then finally, we have the miscellaneous questions. Uh, so the next one is from Dirk Wilhelm. Uh, he said, what are your personal challenges for your karate in the next years? What would you like to achieve? Are weapons a topic? So uh, the Kabuto stuff, that's one of the other things I've moved on. I, I, it never appealed at all. I thought it's a complete irrelevance. I'm never going to use 
a bow, a sai, a tomfa, nunchaku in actual combat. Therefore, I'm not interested in learning it. There's sometimes the argument, yeah, but it can transfer over to improvised weapons and other weapons today. And my argument would be, well, in that case, learn to use those improvised weapons, you know, um, instead of you know learning a size so you can use your mobile phone in self-defense. I don't really buy that argument, but I do feel I would like to know some more about traditional weaponry now because. I don't know anything. You know, it's that thing of, again, that idea of you can't be an expert at everything, but you should be a beginner in, in nothing. You know, I can swing a set of tomfer around. I can swing a sai around. I once learned a sai kata. I can impress people by throwing nunchaku around. That doesn't, you know, some of the kids have the little form ones in the class and love me showing them how to spin them around and catch them in certain ways. So I can do that, you know, but I've never learned to do them properly, really, you know, not beyond that kind of initial basics. So weapons are something I, I would like to know more about, but I'm not there yet. I've got, <laughs> I've got other things I, I want to do. Uh, in terms of my my own aims, I'm really enjoying my karate at the moment. I, I, I'm I'm really enjoying it. I, I've reached a um, uh, something of a sweet spot with it, which I haven't had previously. Uh, at the moment, at 50 years old, I've got that thing of a, a, a big backlog of, of experience. So my, my karate is richer and fuller than it was because I've got that experience. And, and at 50 and I'm in pretty good shape, I've still got that physicality to deliver it. So I'm, I'm really enjoying that. So I, I want to con continue with that at, at the moment. Uh, one thing I am more mindful of now is, you know, as I'm starting to get older and I want to keep doing this for as long as possible, that my training has shifted a little bit because there's a lot of uh, health maintenance stuff, which I didn't really care about in my 20s. You know, training was all about function. Whereas now, you know, I'm doing things just to keep myself fit and healthy to, to maintain that longevity. Uh, the weight training is no longer about, you know, how much weight can I move? You know, the weight training is now about maintaining that bone density, maintaining that muscle mass um, in order to practice karate effectively. I'm doing a lot more cardio now um, than, than I used to previously. You know, a lot of the training previously was, you know, that high intensity stuff that more accurately reflects the demands of the body in combat still do plenty of that but of course your body suffers for having done it because it is so intense so i'm doing a lot more maintenance cardio now as well to keep the heart and lungs healthy just for my longevity too so so that's changed and i want to kind of keep that going so i want to keep as fit and healthy as i can um, but i am enjoying karate now probably more than ever probably more than ever before so i'm really enjoying that and i want to marinate in that a little bit that that nice balance of having that experience and depth which i've built up over the years uh, but still having the physicality to to do it as time goes on i'm fully aware that that physicality is going to diminish that's all part of getting old right so so my karate at that point will probably become a little bit more meditative and theoretical and all that kind of fun stuff and i'll get to that when i get to it but my body's not quite at that point yet and i'm not ready to to jump to that point yet one of my little i'm gonna go to right tangent now and tell a little story but one of my interests aside from karate is i, I love folklore and mythology so i'm forever i've always got one book on the go that's on folklore you know so i'm, I'm reading one on like old nordic fairy tales at the moment just love this stuff because these stories that last time like that they're normally very good stories, and the reason that they are good stories is that they they tell us something about the human condition. 
so there's the, the, on the surface level they're really interesting stories but the reason they've survived so long is they've often got a bit of a depth behind them too so i i, I love mythology and, and folklore i really do so I, I always like the, the the story. There's a, a, a in the Norse mythologies. There's a story of uh, Loki and Thor, um, and I'll cut it short. It's a long story, but the, they end up in the, a castle of a, a giant called uh, Utgard Loki, and this he, he basically says, "Ah, the gods are here," and you know let's see how if their reputation is really well deserved and, and it gives them a, a series of trials um to thor and to loki and um and and to thor's servant um a boy he picks up from a farm earlier in the story and they fail them all and later on this giant reveals oh it was all magical and, and trickery and thor picks up his hammer ready to smash his head in and he disappears right but what one of the ones that thor goes through is that they, they ask him to you're supposed to be the strongest of the gods thor you know you, we're not going to get you to wrestle with us you know but but may, maybe you could wrestle with this old woman eli i think is the name in the mythology so Thor is semi-insulted. You know, of course I can beat her. Well, he, he wrestles her and he can't beat her and he can't beat her. And eventually she drives him to his knees. And later on, you know, when this Utgard Loki is explaining to them the trickery is used, he said that um, this uh, Eli or Eli or whatever it was, he says, uh, she's a manifestation of old age and nobody can defeat old age. <laughs> so, and I love that, that, that story. It's a real nice one. So Thor, the protector of Midgard, right? The protector of humanity, the strongest of all the gods. Even he can't defeat old age. <laughs> you know, so um, none of us can. So, so we, we need to adapt our training as, as we go. So, so hey, these podcasts, you never know what I'm going to talk about because I never know what I'm going to talk about. But yeah, you know, like even a warrior culture like the Vikings accepted that old age is coming and there's nothing you can do about it. So my karate needs to work that in. Not now. I'm still fit and active and I'm doing it fine now. But, you know, when I'm in my 80s and my 90s, if I'm lucky enough to live that long, I know I'll be doing my karate differently. Uh, next question is from Dan Brierley. He said, uh, how much equipment uh, have you got set up to record the live videos you produce? I am imagining quite a lot of uh, of gear to zoom and then record for the app. Is the editing process a chore or have you got it nailed? I, I use a surprisingly basic amount of stuff. So I I'm recording this in my office and in my office I have backdrops, I have lights, I have a, a good high definition camera, I've got uh, radio mics all kind of lighting i've got all of that stuff which i use for the uh, the dvd filming and things but the vast majority of what people see on the app and facebook is filmed on my mobile phone because uh, um, the, the quality is, is fine you know, it's it's fine so i have a little stand that i put it on that has a light around it so I, i'm illuminated okay and and then i just record it from there take it from the phone and i edited it using basic software that came with the computer the, the editing doesn't take me long at all because i do that much of it so and, and I get the, so the, the point would, would be on this as well if you're out there and you're listening to this and you feel you've got good information to share there's nothing to stop you you don't you don't need a lot of fancy kit you know most of us now have perfectly good recording equipment stuck in our pockets you know just just use it and a lot of the dojo footage is done like that i've got my phone at the side 
when I'm teaching the class and if I'm teaching something that I think oh this might be interesting or if one of my students suggests hey, and record this because this will make a good clip for Instagram or the app or whatever I'll go oh, yeah okay you film this and I'll just pass them the phone they'll film it I'll take it off and I'll edit it together so yeah n not a lot not a lot you know is um it, it, the vast majority of it's uh, done on my phone some of the stuff as well if in the app you know we have these in-depth series in there uh, they're often recorded um, by a, a friend of mine in, in Germany who does have a good camera. And when I'm there, he says, you know, uh, uh, you know, do you mind if I film? I go, no, I just want a copy. <laughs> so he, and he's great. There's next to zero editing needed for those because he starts a recording just as I start speaking. Uh, some pe times I've got people who can do it for me. Uh, next question is also from Dan Brealey. He said, uh, a while ago you mentioned uh, about protecting your business against the Brexit process. Uh, would you uh, describe a little about that and why it was necessary and how that became an issue? So I know this is a controversial issue in the UK, right? But, you know, I, I will say that I voted to remain, right? Because I know how advantageous being part of the EU was for me. Uh, when I, I could travel around the EU freely, I could teach freely, I didn't need work permits or anything like that. And now that the UK has left the EU, that there are issues there. Uh, I had to write to all of the individual embassies for all the various countries and say, you know, what are your rules? What permits do I need? All this kind of stuff. Some wrote back saying, none. You know, we have a, um, domestic exceptions for sports instructors. Come and do it just as you want. In other cases, they were keen that the money didn't leave the EU. So on the advice of my accountant and others, uh, I've set up a company within the EU. Uh, so all my seminars done with the, in the EU, all the finances from that go to there and it's taxed there. And then I'll take, you know, a bit out of that on a yearly basis and then... I get taxed in the EU and then as a UK citizen, I'll get taxed as my personal income as well. Um, so I had to do that. There are some countries who've just said, no, you know, um, we allow EU citizens to come in. Uh, but if you're not an EU citizen, you can't come in here and teach without um, being employed by a company that's based in our specific country uh, or without employment. So they're looking for the same kind of paperwork that someone was going to go out there and live. So, for example, I can no longer teach in Austria. I can no longer teach in Norway, which is hugely disappointing and upsetting to me because I, I loved teaching in Austria and, and, uh, and loved teaching in Norway. Um, but at the moment, I can't do that. I've got friends in those countries that are looking, you know, domestically to see what options there may be. But it's it's definitely caused me um, a lot of problems. I know a lot of other people it has um, too. It's not as bad as it, it could have been, but that's only because the uh, countries within the EU uh, are uh, have rules in place to allow me to come and do what I want to do. If they change those rules, um, then the same thing would apply. I wouldn't be able to teach there anymore. So it, it, it is an issue for me. But I, I understand this is a, a politically um, sensitive issue. <laughs> Um, but 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 that's been my experience of it. Um, I was against it, and it has definitely caused me problems. Uh, but thankfully, due to the the kindness really of these these countries, and the embassies getting back to me and helping me, citizens within those countries want me to go there and teach. So those countries have helped me do it. And I hope that remains the case as uh, as this uh, progresses. Uh, the next question is also from Dan Briley. He said, how is your own club doing as a result of lockdowns and restrictions? Have you had any student losses? Was any rebuilding necessary? Uh, my students have been awesome during this. Uh, they have been so uh, supportive. We, like most people, we train on Zoom. 
the vast majority of the students were there uh, regularly. Uh, they were very grateful that you know there was that little bit of normality, that ability to train. We actually made fairly good progress on this, and that's just down to me. That that's the other instructors at my club too. You know, people you'll know well. You know, Fred, Murray, Tim. Uh, they were working with other people as well. When we had our group sessions, we'd have breakouts rooms via Zoom where they teach small bits of kata groups to groups, you know, and whereas I do the general training together. Um, I, I, I don't think we lost a couple, but not many. Uh, and in terms of uh, rebuilding, not, not really, because as soon as we could open back up, they all came back. And well, a lot of clubs, I know a lot have said that they're having something of a, a boom right now, because you've had these people who want to start martial arts who haven't been able to, and then they've all suddenly all started all at once. There's maybe been that little bit of reflection as well uh, during um, lockdown, where you know individuals said, "Look, I've always wanted to do martial arts. I can't at the moment. I now acknowledge I need to get round to this when I can." Uh, I think the clubs during lockdown that just kind of hunkered down and hoped it would pass and didn't really do anything for the students during that time. A lot of them have lost a lot of numbers and members, which I can understand. Uh, but those who were able to kind of keep the core there everyone i talk to uh, that's done that is telling me that they've never been so busy so that's got to be a good thing of course the pandemic is still ticking on you know um you know we've still got peaks and troughs i hesitate to say it because whenever i've said something about the pandemic i've been proven wrong <laughs> but i think we're over the worst of it now uh, um, um there's still a way to go yet but i think we're over the worst of it now uh, and then you know hopefully you know we'll, we'll see that boom but as a friend of mine pointed out you know if you look at the end of the last kind of major pandemic we had you know the spanish flu stuff um after that we had the kind of the roaring 20s you know th there was this period of, of boom so you know you've got to hope that that, that kind of happens again that, that there's this strong kind of recovery once once it's all passed so you know it's bit of a famine now but hopefully we've got a feast coming soon but yeah my own club did fine and that's entirely down to uh, the help of the other instructors who, who guided me some of the best ideas weren't from me they were from them uh, and, and my students too were just utterly awesome it was good for me too right you know because I, I live alone it's lockdown and stuff and to be able to get online and, and interact with my friends which my students are they're all my friends too was great for me mentally and as a lot of you know, what I did, what I made the offer to people I regularly do seminars for and that kind of stuff. I said, look, if you want me to do some online classes for you or cover a class for you so you can have a night off, I'm happy to do that. So during the pandemic, I was doing a lot of free teaching for other people too. And I loved it because, again, it was still a chance for me to interact with, with, with everybody as well. So, so, yeah, it wasn't as bad as it could have been, thank, thanks to the support I've got around me. Tired of expensive fashion? Then get the latest stylish trousers from Hikate Menswear. Our trousers consist of a single leg that will fall down all the time, but by the power of Hikate, they will be twice as warm and twice as stylish as regular trousers. Just listen to what this customer told us. My sensei told me to wear Hikate trousers, and when I pointed out that I was naked from the waist down, aside from a rolled up tube of cloth around one ankle, he assured me that his sensei sensei would have thought I looked great. I wore them for a Christmas night out, and now I have an arrest record for indecent exposure. Hikate menswear! You know it makes no sense, but do it anyway! This is a good question, Dan.
Dan's, uh, Dan Briley again, he says, and finally, why is your app so fantastic? I love it. <laughs> I have a uh, I have a regular week uh, weekly catch up of the current videos and then rummage around to look at the early stuff. Uh, there's loads of content on there. Thank you. So I've included that, right? I've answered Dan's other two questions. So, um, but yeah, I love the app. The, the app is my favourite project. And the reason I love it so much is like unlike a book or a DVD or a download, when they're finished, they're finished. The the app is ongoing. It's it, it's organic and, and there's a community around it. So the subscribers to it keep telling me oh you know i love that can we have more of that or you mentioned this can we have more detail on this so and the people who subscribe the app are really hardcore into this stuff they are practical karate nuts you know so 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 therefore they're a great community to interact with so you know i I update it um every week one normally two videos every every single week you know so typically 30 minutes of new footage there's well over a thousand hours of stuff on there now so I believe that's you know it's, it's that's good value for money. You've got access to a thousand hours worth of stuff, anything you can think of: pad drills, partner drills, sparring drills, various cutters broken down, some obscure cutters as well broken down, um, uh, loads of content or, uh, on. Uh, there's the audio lessons on there. I've got exclusive audio books on there. You know, so I, it, it's a real labour of love, and, and I'm I'm really happy with how it is you know and, and again it couldn't do it without the support of the uh, the app users the only reason i can afford to spend so much time in it is, is because those people are kind enough to subscribe to it so we've got that mutually beneficial thing where they get a lot of information the, the my favorite thing about the app as well is the live sessions we have so i'll be doing one of them again soon so every so often uh, we do a live session and then that footage gets added to the app so some people can do it on demand or catch up they can do the workout along with the video and there's lots of those on there and again during the pandemic when the whole world was locked down the peak of the pandemic um it was great to okay we're doing a live session and we'd have people from you know australia america canada uh mexico all over europe you know you name it we had people who were dropping online to train together so it, it, it was it was nice to interact with that um community in that way i love doing that the live sessions are great and you know a lot of the people who subscribe to the app and do the live sessions and I, I know personally i've met them at seminars on my travels um, but there's some that i've just got to know and became friendly with specifically through the app so it, it, it's nice to have that community on that as well on the live sessions what i we've done series of them where we've gone right we're going to train this given element for the next month and we'll have a weekly session doing it and what i've really enjoyed is watching the progress of, of those so you know but by the end of that month you know again these are as i say these are practical karate nuts they are really really into it so you know that they're, they're looking at the footage and they're drilling it over and over again and, and you see them get the grips with it on the first week and then by week four you, you, you're revisiting that stuff and wow what a difference so i love the fact that it's making such a positive impact as well so yeah thanks for that dan that's very kind of you to say uh, so the next one is uh, from Frazato, who's a, a member of the forum. He says, I was wondering, Ian, how did you start all of this? I mean, the practical karate vision and methodology you teach today. What were your early influences? What helped you connect the dots? In the first videos and all the podcasts, you're already quite confident about what you were doing. Although you've polished details of it through the years, the principles and all, the, all reproach have remained. So, so that got me curious. So, so one of the early on, I've, I always regarded uh, the self-defense side of it as an honest datum. 
And, and what I mean by that is you need something by which to measure your progress. So if you say, I'm going to do it by uh, how effective this is in competition karate, for example, and then they radically change the rules, well, effective is no longer effective. But what works in self-defense is consistent. It's, I always regarded that as an honest datum by which to me measure progress. So, you know, am I more capable of defending myself? I always thought it was a really good datum. So that practical bias was always there. Uh, as I mentioned before, I remember seeing my first kata and was absolutely in awe of it. So, so kata was one of those things that just fascinated me. Uh, I've, I've always really been interested in it. So that, that practicality and that love of kata started to kind of fuse. Uh, I've always been a pro uh, prolific reader as well, uh, even as a kid. I, I love reading and I love learning. I don't read a lot of fiction. Um, I like, you know, movies and TV shows. I like fiction. I like a good story. Um, uh, but but I, 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 a lot of factual and historical stuff I like reading. So I did a lot of karate research and learning the history about it. And I, I think that helped as well. I was also lucky enough to connect with uh, Peter Constein and Jeff Thompson uh, when they started the, the BCA, uh, the British Combat Association. And in the UK, we refer to that time period, you know, the 1990s, as the reality revolution. Because uh, Jeff and Peter just kind of burst onto the scene. And, if, you know, if you're teaching self-defense, you kind of, this is what you should be doing. And most people are doing it wrong. And um, th their message really resonated with me. I thought, I can see this, you know. So um, that was obviously a, a big influence as, as well. Um, so that, that kind of helped. Um, the other thing with it, you know, he's saying you're already very confident with what you're doing. But one thing I'll always point out to people is I, I don't share the stuff that I'm unsure of. So if I'm still thinking an idea through or it hasn't fully uh, cemented in my mind, I don't share it with people because it's not ready to be shared. So anything I put out is something that I've thought about a lot. I've tested a lot. I've, I've checked the logic of my argument or the efficiency of the method uh, before I put it out. But that doesn't mean that hasn't been dead ends. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting here at my desk and next to it there's a filing cabinet full of what I call my bunkai books which are my notebooks on given cutters and given things and all that kind of stuff. And you'll see the amount of crossing outs and things where, where I've had an idea, I've explored that idea, and then realised it, it falls short for some reason. So that idea just remains in the book. Finding those dead ends help. You know, um, it, it's never a negative thing, that, because knowing what's not true helps you learn what is true. What's not useful helps you learn what is useful. But, you know, that stuff doesn't get shared. You know, I, I don't come out on a podcast or a video going, you know, here's a half-baked idea I haven't thought through properly. <laughs> but I wouldn't want people to think that these ideas drop into my mind fully formed, you know. It's just I don't share the ideas that aren't fully formed there. So I hope that helps. I hope that helps ex explains it a bit. So the next one's from Matt, uh, from New Zealand again. Matt's, a, again, forum member. He said, have you ever considered republishing any of your books? For example, doing a limited print run or using an on-demand service like Lulu? Ebooks are great and I own a few, but I do enjoy having something physical I can pick up off the shelf and flick through, uh, flick through uh, write notes in or gift to people. Uh, I get asked that a lot as well because most of my books now uh, are out of print and, and I intend to leave them out of print. Uh, and the reason for that is uh, 
it, it costs a lot of money to get the books printed. And the book industry has changed considerably from when I started. Particularly, this is because Amazon is now so dominant. So if you want a book, the vast majority of people get books now from Amazon, right? So in the early days, I'd sell, you know, about half through bookstores and, you know, some through direct mail and then some through Amazon. And they were, they were just and so financially viable. Uh, Amazon are great for buying things off. You know what I mean? It's fast service, good prices. You know, I get that. Uh, I haven't found Amazon to be a good experience to sell via so I don't really make my books available now. Amazon will occasionally write to me and say, oh, will you send us X copies of your books? Nah, because they don't pay quickly. And by the time they do pay, I think I worked out I was either making a loss on someone or was making as little as a few pence per book. So it's just not worth it. I'll just keep them at home and sell them direct. So to suddenly print another few thousand copies, I don't think would be effective. And the other thing with those books, most of them... You know, so Karate's Grappling Methods was written in 2000, Bunkai Jitsu, 2002. You know, these books are 20 years old. So uh, everything in them I still stand behind, and, and th those those ideas are still there. But in those last 20 years, as, as Frazatta was saying before, I do feel I've got better at expressing those ideas. I, I do feel I've found ways to communicate them which resonate better with people. Uh, and I found uh, sometimes things that I realised that I understood exactly what it meant, but when other people look at it, they, they misunderstand it, and I can understand why they misunderstand it. So I, I have a number of half-written books that I intend to go out. So rather than using the money for the old books, I'd rather keep hold of that money and use it for the new books, because I, I think that'll be better. Uh, the trouble I have is time. You know, there's so many demands on my time that the, the books, they will get out there eventually. Um, uh, and when they do, and I, I need to have the finances uh, to put them out. And of course, the pandemic put a big dent in that as well, so I've got to rebuild the war chest a little bit. But yeah, no plans to reprint them at, at, at the moment, unfortunately. But I get exactly what Matt's saying. I'm the same. I, I, I like e-books and audio books too, but there is something nice about having a physical book and then sitting down at the end of the day to, to read a book, you know, I, I, I get that. But yeah, no, no, no plans to reprint any of them at the moment. Uh, Brian Bates has got a good, uh, a good one here. So straight out of uh, fight club. <laughs> he said, if you could fight anyone alive or dead, who would it be? And why? I love the movie fight club, by the way, I think it's a really good film. And the book, if you haven't read the book, the book is even better. You know, the, the, um, the ending's different and there's some other bits that are different in it. I, I really enjoyed the book more than I enjoyed the movie, but the movie's good too. So anyone alive and dead, who would it be? That's a hard one. Because there's two elements. That, one is I'd like to fight them because um, for the fun of doing it and let's see how good they are. So it'd be nice to spar with some of the old masters, for example, and, and go, okay, how has my karate evolved and what do you do better than me and what do I do better than you? You know, that, that ability to kind of compare skills, I think, would be really useful. So, you know, I, I, I'd love to have a spar with, you know, the motorboos of this world. You know, that'd be, be interesting, you know, for, from that point of view. But there's no doubt there's some people in history who just need punched. <laughs> You know, I, I, and, you know, I, I think he, I, I'd do a good job at that. You know, so if you think of you know, some of the great villains of history, how, how much fun would it be to batter the living daylights out of someone like Hitler? 
<laughs> I can imagine that to be hugely satisfying, you know. Um, so, yeah, let's go with him. Yeah, I'm quite confident I could absolutely batter the living daylights out of him and he deserves it right so so yeah probably the old masters but if you want someone else i'd go for one of the the great tyrants of history you know and and just for the sheer enjoyment of putting them in the place i think So the next one's from uh, Terry Monksfield. He said, who, in your opinion, uh, is the most influential martial artist of the last 50 years and why? See, that's a really good one as well, because uh, I think martial art is it's, it's something of a golden age at the moment, uh, predominantly because of the, the internet. The, the ability for martial artists to share information has, has never been higher. You know, I, and I, I think I've probably told you this story before, but I remember once being at the class, and we'd done a, a particular drill. And uh, one of my students had said, you should film that. So he grabbed the, my phone and he filmed it. And I shared it on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and stuff. Uh, and then the next day, the next evening, uh, I log on. And there's a guy in Canada who's done that exact same drill to, with his students. So that's amazing to me that within 24 hours, a drill I've done in my home dojo at northern uh, um, England can find its way across the Atlantic and people are doing it. So in the days before the internet, how long would that have took? You know, if, if that person had to buy a DVD or, you know, see it in a magazine article, you know. So information is spreading really quickly. Um, but if you're going to say who's the most influential, I'm, I'm going to go with Hori and Gracie. Uh, and the reason for that is uh, he was the guy who set up the first UFC. Uh, and, and because he set up the first UFC, uh, MMA, modern MMA, which as we know was quite different from those early days, w was able to spread and uh, develop. And I think MMA has had a huge influence on the way that people think about the martial arts and, and, and practice as well. So I'd have to go with him. I think Hori and Gracie has probably been the most influential martial artist of the last 50 years, if you look at his, his big impact. Uh, you've, you've then got... I think Jeff Thompson, Peter Constein would be in there as well because of the massive influence they've had on the way that martial arts are practiced in the UK. They have a big influence on me and lots of other people who teach in the UK and then we, in turn, go on to have influences on others. So in that practical karate movement, if you like, th those two have played a huge influence. But if you're talking globally, yeah, I'd have to go with uh, Hori and Gracie, I think. Next one is from Claude Van Martin. He said, is there a move that's impossible to defend against? Well, you know, arguably you could hit someone in the head with a brick while they're asleep and that would be impossible to defend against. But um, in terms of, you know, actual uh, combat, it's one of the things I always say at seminars that no technique is 100% effective all of the time. The technique doesn't exist that works for all people, regardless of how well or badly they perform it, irrespective of how well or badly the opponent defends against it, and that's suitable for all contexts and environments. Um, that technique doesn't exist. Every technique has the potential to fail. So a good practical martial arts approach takes into account that you know there's this high rate of failure in, in in combat and therefore has plans for what to do if this technique fails how is it likely to fail and what do we do from that position to maintain the initiative um so you know 
I don't think there is one one once combat begins that that, that that's guaranteed um, to work all of the time. This is why preemption is so important, though, because that's one technique that works a lot more than it doesn't. But once you start uh, fighting, once it becomes physical, you know, you could beat that guy 99 times out of 100, but he swings one lucky punch and catches you. There's always that degree of luck uh, when the, the fight um, begins. We need to kind of accept that, you know, that there is going to be that a degree of luck. And no matter how good we are at something, it can fail. As the Japanese phrase goes, even monkeys can fall out of trees. You could be the best puncher in the world and still mess up, you know. Um, so, no, I don't think that, that, that there is one that, you know, that is impossible to defend against. Um, and, and we need to just accept that, that, that there is going to be a high rate of failure. This is an entirely unscientific statement, but, you know, but I think it holds true. You know, I tell students, you know, on, on your best day, on your best day when, you, you know, you're doing incredibly well, around at least 50% of what you use is going to fail. You know, it's, it's just the way it is. It's just the nature of combat. Um, you know, boxers don't go out in a boxing match and knock each other out with the first shot every time. You know, judo throwers don't get people with the first throw most of the time. You know, you don't get your first submission all the time. Um, you know, th 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 there is that high rate of failure and we need to kind of accept that. Uh, Steve Griffin says, uh, uh, who to invite to the ultimate martial arts pub uh, lunch and why? Three, uh, three guests, living or dead. It's a really good one, that one as well. See, I'm glad he said martial artists as well, because I've been asked this question before on my own podcast and others. And uh, both times I picked comedians who were later outed as being horrible human beings for things they'd done behind closed doors. So I have a bad habit of inviting very undesirable people to these lunches because <laughs> I, I do like comedy. I watch a lot of stand-up comedy. But it turns out, you know, like all things, you can be a good comedian and a horrible person, right? Yeah, so, so but martial arts, right? So three. So, um, yeah, it Itosu would be one. I'd, I'd, I'd love to chat to Itosu about what his vision were, was for karate and how he feels about the way that it's spread. I'd love him to be there. Motobu would be another. I'd love to have a chat with Motobu about, again, the same things, how he feels about the, the, the practical karate movement now, how he feels about how karate evolved, what he feels about its spread. And the other side of the view, I think Funakoshi too. What's really interesting about Funakoshi, and not a lot of people acknowledge this, that in the uh, the reprint of Karate Do Kyohan, Funakoshi uh, wrote the foreword to it. So he's near the end of his life. The book was actually published after Funakoshi's death, uh, but he wrote the foreword b before he died. And if you read that foreword, he's not overly happy with the way that karate was starting to go. He's quite critical of it. He, he, the karate of the 1950s, when Funakoshi's looking at it, uh, he comes across as a grumpy old man. You know, he's, he's not happy about it. He's, he's, he's quite modest. He says, you know, maybe it's not my place to say. You know, maybe my day's done. Maybe I can't have a big influence on things, but it's not without some regret that I don't look at it. So I, I'd love to talk to Funakoshi more about that. You know, you know, you, you started this off, you know, thanks for the Koshi, you helped karate spread. But even before the end of your days, you, you saw how it was developing and you weren't happy with it. Do you feel we're getting it better now? So, yeah, I, th I think I'd love to pick the brains of Itosu, Motobu and Funakoshi. They would be my uh, my top three. I don't think Funakoshi and Motobu would appreciate being invited to the same dinner. Maybe me and Itosu could sit between them. <laughs> Because as it's well known, they, they didn't get on. But yeah, they'd be my three, I think.
next one's from Harley Gillian. He said, uh, Ian, you're a major influence in the world of martial arts. Thank you very much. Uh, is there one thing that you have said or showed and then thought, I got that wrong, and or people have what have taken what I said wrong and have sent uh, people too far in the wrong direction? Yes, loads, loads. Uh, so to give some examples, right, simple ones. Uh, my first book was called Karate Grappling Methods because to, to me, when you're grappling, it's any form of grabbing, right? But grappling is, in a lot of the minds of modern martial artists, means the advanced kind of grappler versus grappler grappling. Man, that was a sentence, wasn't it? Uh, that you see in uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu tournaments or, or, or MMA. That's not in the catters because it's for non-consensual violence, not consensual violence. So that term grappling was confusing. Maybe I should have used a different term. Uh, the, the, like another one in my first book, uh, I wrote about the rules of bunkai, how to break down kata. Uh, and I realize now that rules uh, as a word infers uh, something fixed, set in place. And I think guidelines would have been better because, of course, the katas were made by different people in different points of history. So they didn't all get together and say, right, how are we going to construct these things? There's, there's subtle differences between some of them. Um, obviously, the, the making the kata for a given purpose, and there's only so many ways you can do it, so there is a lot of commonality that naturally occurs. But I think guidelines would have been a better word uh, than rules. Uh, another big one, I think, uh, is uh, pointing out to people that karate is for un, uh, the karate of the katas is for untrained people. Which it is, but using the word untrained has, has led to a lot of people thinking, I mean, people who are not skilled. And, and that's not what I mean. I just meant another, not another martial artist who'll put his guard up from 10 feet away and engage in a mutual exchange. Um, uh, criminals can be highly skilled. I, I, I personally know people who would never win a karate tournament, would never win an MMA tournament, but you put them in that criminal violence context and they are the apex predator. That They will take out really skilled fighters before that fighter even knows they're in a fight. You know, um, um, it, 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 it's, it's, it's different. So I think that use of the word untrained was problematic and, and has definitely confused people. Uh, um, I mean, it's out there now, so I'm stuck with it to a degree, but uh, I, I, I think non-martial artists or, or, or violent criminals would have been a better way than saying untrained. Because by untrained, I just mean someone who isn't a martial artist of the same style of, as you, right? As opposed to unskilled. And I think there's that sometimes arrogance that martial artists have. If you haven't trained martial arts, you can't possibly know what you're doing. Again, I'll, you know, I'll talk about like one of my closest friends, a really lovely, lovely guy now, but he'll freely admit that in his youth he wasn't a really nice guy, uh, and he'd get into loads of fights, and, and, and uh, he'd tell me that his, his plan was he'd hit them with his right hand, preferably why they weren't expecting it, if they were still standing he'd grab them and headbutt them, if they were still standing he'd run off, that, that, that was his fighting strategy, now you, you stick him in an MMA tournament, he's going to lose. But, you know, in his environment, my money's on him every time. Because that right hand is lethal and has been honed through experience. He'll throw it when you don't expect it to throw it. Um, and he'll land that headbutt as well, you know. And, and, and if it should fail, he's got this simple escape plan too. So he's highly potent in that context. So yeah, that untrained one was was uh, a big one as uh, as well. I'd also say, you know, I've mentioned this already. I think part of the other thing is that obviously, like when I do seminars and stuff, what what I'm I'm getting across to people is the stuff they don't already know or, or want to refine a little bit. 
so so we, we tend to spend a, a lot of time on the breakdown of the cut of the pad drills that you know how to construct live drills out of them that kind of thing they come to learn that so that people sometimes wrongly assume that that's the way I teach in my own dojo, you know, and, and I don't, you know, I mean, well, I do do all of that, but I also do, you know, I'll make sure they've got good cat ring key on. So I, I think there's sometimes that element of people, as I talked about earlier, going bunkai daft and forgetting about having the fundamentals in place and ending up trying to apply what's very poor quality karate. And that doesn't work either. It's no good if your technique is super sharp, but you've got no idea how to apply it. That's pointless. Um, but it's, it's also, you know, no good if your technique's really poor, then you try and apply it, right? It's like going into a battle with a rusty, brittle sword. Doesn't matter how skilled a swordman you are, that thing's not going to serve you well. You need it. So, yeah, there's a few. You know, I, I, there's things I've, I've, I've definitely thrown out into the world and then realised, ah, you know what I mean? That didn't quite come across in the way that I intended. Which goes back to the early question about the books as well, you see. That's, that's why uh, I think I've got better through all the seminar teaching that I've done and the direct feedback I've got from people, I've got better at putting certain points across. So I would do things differently today. Uh, next one's from Jim Woodcock. He says, could you talk about the DKU-Brad uh, Scott fight? So this is, this is the thing where I, I, I like watching YouTube. There's some uh, martial artists I follow on YouTube, but I'd largely missed this. You know, I, I, I didn't see it until Jim and others said, you know, what's your thoughts on this? So I, I'm no expert in any of this. I do know who Brad Scott was, you know, a, a, like a British UFC fighter, fully aware of him. DKU had completely passed me by. Didn't know who he was. Um, so I looked at some footage and, you know, I can see great body mechanics and great movement. I also saw an interview where, which I believe led to this fight, where he was saying he felt he could uh, beat any UFC fighter, including Conor McGregor and stuff. And, there's 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 an arrogance there right there's an arrogance there so uh, i mean for me I, I, am i capable of defending myself oh definitely i am i am a competent martial artist definitely i, I am could i step into the ufc and face these high level fighters absolutely not <laughs> you know the, the these are people who are specialists in that area who are highly trained in what they do who are incredibly skilled you know i mean i i, I am fully aware that that, that they are way better than me uh, 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 and, and and i would i would i would be out real quick so i, I think someone who's not engaged in that who's not training in that uh, who has not competed in that to a high level to then go oh, i could beat all of them that comes across to me as very arrogant distasteful um so you know i did see little clips of the fight and there's you're sure a lot of hugging you know, which is probably a good strategy from his perspective. I know there was some criticism of how soft the gloves were. I know there was some criticism that the referees were all ones that had been bought in for this. I saw uh, Brad Scott commenting afterwards, and he, I thought the way that he did it was great. They were saying, you know, we're going out for a meal with DKU afterwards, and, you know, no excuses. You know, he fought the fight he should have fought, and, you know, these gloves seem incredibly soft, but I'm not making excuses for that, you know. So it was a bit of a non-event, really, when I when I looked at it. But it kind of passed me by. It kind of passed me by. So Brad Scott, UFC fighter, definitely knows what he's doing, highly skilled martial artist. DKU looks to have lovely body mechanics. I think if he legitimately believes that he can step into the UFC and beat these high-level fighters, there's an element of delusion there, um, which is a little bit distasteful, I think.
Next one's from Richard Morton. He said, what style of karate would father Christmas practice? Well, I think we've had this one before. And, 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 and uh, I mean, he's a big guy, right? So sumo. He wears a black belt. <laughs> Uh, so that would, I, I think you know I, I, I think ninjutsu would have to be the answer right because he sneaks into people's houses and sneaks out without anyone even knowing he was there nobody ever sees him he's a master of invisibility yeah I, I have a, a family member a child who is uh, when he learned of uh, Father Christmas was terrified <laughs> what this strange man's going to sneak into our house while we're all asleep <laughs> <laughs> when I thought about that, actually, that is quite sinister. When, you know, yeah, and he judges. He's watching us all the time, and he he judges who's naughty or nice, and then sneaks into our home while everyone's asleep, and then eats food and sneaks back out again. You know, if he didn't leave gifts, that's terrifying. If any of us did that, we'd be arrested. So, uh, yeah, man, that's yeah. I've never noticed that before. Yeah, it's bound to be an injutsu guy, right? Uh, Michael Townsend, uh, what has been your biggest light bulb moment? Uh, see, that's another good one. The one that jumps to mind, I'm sure there are others, it is when I got through my head that the techniques of the kata were for non-consensual violence. So dealing uh, close range with uh, a criminal who's trying to overwhelm me with violence and the objective being to ensure your own safety. Once I got that and then started to look at the kata, it made loads of sense. I think the biggest mistake that a lot of people make when they look at kata is uh, how would I apply this against another karateka? Uh, and that's how it goes wrong. You see this, you know, formal oizukis from God knows how long away. And, and, and it's very contrived and very wrong. But if you realise it's for that close-range, non-consensual uh, conflict, it makes a lot of sense. It's like uh, Rory Miller once wrote in one of his blogs, you know, and Rory's not a great fan of kata, you know, so... Uh, I'm just getting that out there. I like Rory, met him a few times in person, lovely guy, really knows his stuff, but I don't want to misrepresent him. So he's not a big fan of Kata generally. Uh, but what Rory uh, did say uh, in one of his blogs was he said that when he looks at karate, he said, I've seen some of the best body mechanics for infighting that I've ever seen. But then they insist at testing it at sparring range where it sucks. <laughs> that is a very good observation. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah. So if you if you look at the the, 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 the positions, the structure, the movements, it is in fighting stuff. It is close range stuff. It's not designed for fighting another martial artist at a, a distance. So I think that the, the, probably the biggest light bulb moment, and as I'm thinking about this, I can't really think of another one that competes, so I think this would be it, was getting it through my head. And this is historically documented as well. Motobu and Itosu talked about this. But but getting that realisation that that's what it was for. I think if I was going to pick a secondary one, it would be realising that the angles in Kata represent the angle that you're assuming relative to the enemy. And that was something I worked out on my own initially. So if you look at the Karate's Grappling Methods book, and the uh, Bunkai Jitsu book, uh, I mention it in there, that, that it represents the angle you shift to them. So the thought process on that was, I know that when you're in fighting, uh, tactical positioning is important. Being able to get away from your enemy's attack line while keeping the enemy on your attack line gives you a big advantage in that moment. So I know that it, it's something that's important. So how does the cat record that? Well, you're on your own. So the only thing you can record the angle in reference to is you, because you're all there is. So I, I'd kind of worked that out and wrote it in the books. Years later, I come across uh, Mabuni's uh, extract from his is how to perform kata correctly where he says that's exactly what it is he explains that the angle of the kata i remember fist pumping the air in my office when i read it i, thought, I knew i was right 
I knew I was right. And then we've got Motobu alludes to it as well, and Taguchi talks about it as well. So you start seeing these historical sources, but it was one of those things I worked out for myself. You know, so if a movement's at 45 degrees in the cat, I'm at 45 degrees to my opponent. So if someone gives me a new bit of uh, bunkai, you know, a, new, a kata sequence, I go, what do you think? Uh, I, the stance will give me the weight shift, so that gives me a big clue. What stance are we in? What's, what's the weight shift? Uh, the next thing is, uh, what's the angle? Because I know where the enemy is relative to me, and then I'll look at the hand position. Okay, what does this hand position look like? Is it a, a, a trap, a strike, a lock, a choke, a throw? You know, I, I can work it out from, from, from there. So, yeah, the main one, definitely that, realising that kata was non-consensual violence. A secondary one will be realising that the angles in the kata show you the angle that you are relative to the enemy. They're not the angle that the enemy is attacking you from. This is a great question, this. Uh, uh, Bobby Nelson. He says, How does Bob sleep at night knowing that he's giving the rest of us Bobs a bad name by constantly getting beat up? <laughs> as, as you have heard through this podcast, Bob gives as good as he gets. <laughs> that, that was a good question. And the next one, uh, I, I'm going to struggle to pronounce the, the surname here. Uh, Nguyen is, I'm, I'm guessing, N-G-U-Y-E-N, B-T Nguyen. He says, is it true that you used to train with the coach of the British national judo team? No, it's not true. My, my judo instructor uh, was uh, Mike Liptrot, who is a very well-known uh, senior judo instructor in the UK. An excellent, excellent coach. Uh, I mean, not just in judo, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's an ex, you know, he obviously knows he was on the British team and has trained a number of highly skilled judo players. He's... he's very, very knowledgeable when it comes to judo, walking encyclopedia, but an incredibly good instructor as well. You know, as a fellow instructor myself, I'll look at the way that Mike teaches and the way he does things, and it's like, whoa, you know, this the, the, this guy is really, really good. So I trained with him. Uh, Mike is incredibly well known. The, the bit I remember on that one, I was once teaching in Denmark, uh, doing a seminar, and there was a judo seminar on at the same time. And it's always the case with, uh, um, uh, if you're a seminar instructor, you're always the last one out the room, right? Or most of the time. So I, I finished and, you know, I, I chat to people, I get packed up, I, you know, we take photographs, sign things if anyone wants to sign. I go to the changing room, I'm, I'm the only karateka in there. And then the guy who's been teaching the judo seminar comes in and he's the last guy out. So uh, I recognise him and I says, oh, you know, uh, you know, I'm Ian, I've been teaching a karate seminar downstairs. He says, oh yeah, no, I, I heard that as well. We start chatting, he's a lovely guy. And then he, he says to me, uh, as I mentioned, I said, oh yeah, I've, I've done you know, a bit of judo myself. And he went, oh, uh, who do you train under? I went, Mike Liptrot. He goes, oh, how is Mike? And then he starts asking about all the club members and everyone else. So, so Mike's someone with a real, he's got an international re renown. Uh, but he, he wasn't the, the coach of the national British judo team. Uh, although he was the coach of, you know, he's definitely a senior uh, 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 coach, and his instructor was the, the, the most successful British uh, judo coach uh, we've ever had as well. And I got the privilege to train under him once as well, so which was amazing. No, nothing quite like a guy grabbing hold of you. You know, this quite old at that point, grabbing hold of you and just feeling that power and knowledge. You know, it was like, yeah, this guy could bounce me off all four walls. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a really nice feeling. 
And again, another excellent coach too. So, so, so yeah. So that brings us to the end of the miscellaneous questions. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I, I certainly enjoy putting these ones together. They are a lot of work, a lot more than a normal podcast because of the length and the, the editing involved and the fact I need to write all the silly bits, which I hope you enjoyed, and record them separately as well. Um, my last few days in the run-up to Christmas are normally spent getting up early in the morning, sitting in front of the microphone, recording and editing. I actually have a bad neck. <laughs> at the moment simply because of I've, I've been talking into this microphone for um so long but but nevertheless you know i, I hope you enjoy them and, and and i know the feedback on them is always really good you know I, I i like the fact that a lot of you look forward to these end of year ones and have made it part of your your, your holiday traditions as well you know people tell me oh yeah i'll listen to your podcast while i'm cooking christmas lunch and the family are in the other room or yeah i always listen to your podcast when i'm putting the decorations up or whatever it happens to be i, I love that you know what i mean I, I really do like it so thank you very much for contributing for those who contributed questions and thank you to all of you for listening but as i said at the start you know agree or disagree i'm given my views i'll explain why i hold my views and i hope you find it interesting whether you agree with me or not so this is what i'd like to end this year's podcast on right is you don't need to agree with me to be my friend and i will never make you an enemy just because you disagree with me on anything i always like to judge people by the more important characteristics are they kind compassionate people are they nice people you know if if you are i don't care what views you hold i'll still like it <laughs> and the reason i mention that is uh, i've you know obviously i said i wasn't going to mention the pandemic but there's been a lot of online debate about that you know some of which i've triggered right um because i like to debate these things i like to hear what other people think and why they think it maybe i'll learn something or maybe i'll just say i, you know, I can't see the logic in their position at all and I, therefore i hold my own view with more validity because it's been challenged I, I like to have discussions like that but th there are some people who have uh, who have then gone oh i can't believe you're pro vaccine i'm unfollowing you and i thought you were a nice guy you know okay fair enough you know if you don't want to talk to me about it that's fine but 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 for me i never want to surround myself with people who only hold the same views that i hold but because it just becomes a little echo chamber you don't learn anything if you do that you, you need these discussions uh, some of the closest people to me in my life hold radically different views from me uh, one of my best friends is adamantly anti-vax and, and and we'll debate it and we'll argue about it but he's still my best friend right i love him a bit because he's, he's he's a kind honest good guy that's what matters to me I, I have another friend who i'm really close with we argue about politics all the time right but he doesn't kind of then go oh i don't want to speak to you anymore and i know that either because he's a good guy you know we just hold different views on things so i, I would hope that as we see these debates churn around everywhere, as everyone tries to make sense of it, um, it, it's totally okay to debate these things, in my view. It's totally okay to somewhat tell someone, you're wrong, you're flat out wrong, and this is why, you know what I mean? It, it's good to have that back and forth, and no one should moderate their opinion for fear of kind of upsetting somebody else, right? You should state your opinion honestly and truthfully. And good people, you know what I mean, people who welcome that debate, will go, okay, we've had the debate, and, you know, great. 
I still like you. You know what I mean? I, I'm still your friend. So I just wanted to make that point to end on. You know, I can think you're wrong, but still like you. <laughs> I, I, I hope uh, you can think I'm wrong and still like me too. You know, that, 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 that's the thing. We need to judge each other more as the, the more important human issues and, and not start judging people by any particular opinion they hold. No matter how wrong we feel that opinion is, have that debate. But we just still like each other as people for the qualities that we admire in those people. So there's lots of people I admire who I think are totally dead wrong on, on, on various issues. So hopefully that's a positive-ish. Uh, message to um, to end this end of year podcast on, but yeah, thanks everybody. You know, what I mean, I, I really do appreciate it. I hope that 2022 is a better year uh, for all of us. I can't thank you enough for all the good humour, support, friendship, uh, back and forth jokes, and Mickey taking online. I love it all. I really do. I, I am. I really love being part of this community. I, I do. You know, I look on Instagram and see all the great martial arts that's been done. The self-deprecating humour amongst you all—it's, it's great. You, you know, you are a great bunch of people. <laughs> I really enjoy, enjoy your company, virtually and in reality as well. So yeah, thanks for listening to the very end. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you're in, enjoying the holidays, and I'll be back with more soon. Okay, take care, everyone. Bye bye. <laughs>